Welcome back to What We Don't Know. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm here with Phineas. Phineas, who are we chatting with today? We have Nat Ware, who is a social impact entrepreneur, the founder and CEO of an organization called Forte that focuses on reskilling. They have a really innovative model that they believe can be applied really across the world. So Nat's company, Forte, is essentially pioneering a new model that allows wealthy individuals or entities, private sector, to invest in the reskilling or retraining of poor marginalized individuals. And instead of indebting those people, they enter into an agreement with the government for rights to their future tax revenue. He'll explain more about how it works, but what I absolutely love about this model is that it incentivizes powerful, wealthy entities, individuals, you know, private equity firms, whatever, they're totally incentivized to invest in the well-being, the long-term well-being of poor people. That is the crux of the innovation that is so, so exciting, is that they can be agnostic or even typically bad actors. The types of investors that are typically extractive in so many ways are all of a sudden invested in someone to not only do okay, but the more they flourish, the better the return is for these individuals. That's what I'm so excited about. I'm excited for other folks to learn about. He's smart as shit. You know, we're talking about a Rhodes Scholar, PhD at Oxford, so I'll let him explain it for himself. Let's get into the episode. in what a lot of folks call the fourth industrial revolution. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on in the jobs market that's unique and maybe different than what's happened previously? Yeah, I mean, to state the obvious, it was a bit of a shock to the system the past year when it comes to the labor market. And I think that's sort of caused us to rethink many things about the education system because, you know, traditionally people got one job and stayed in that one job for their entire life. And when that's the case, the model of go away to college, you know, spend four years at college, learn a set of skills and live off that for the rest of your life. That, that kind of worked. But we've essentially moved from what was really a linear model of education at one point in your life to, to what is now very much a cyclical model uh, of learning, work, learning, work, learning, work, or some people prefer to conceptualize it as the two happening simultaneously. And I, I think the pen, th those trends were already happening uh, given the rate of technological change, given automation, AI, robotics, etc. Uh, but I think the pandemic very much accelerated that. Uh, and I think what we'll see is more and more people shifting careers more often. Uh, and then I guess the, the way that we train people for those new skills and the financial systems that we put in place to support it need to reflect that new sort of cyclical world rather than linear world. What is one of like, as you did this research around job displacement, what's happening around the world, what is like a stat or, or something really important that most people don't know that you wish most people understood about what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people often assume that, you know, you need that long education to actually be skilled in particular areas and to be able to change careers. But if, if you look at all the data on what training programs work, what's successful, what proportion of people who go through those programs are able to get good jobs afterwards. Uh, it does very much support this idea that you can reskill uh, with pretty short accelerated courses. And we're talking under six months here, everything from two to six months. Because often in you know four-year programs or whatnot, the, the proportion of that that is actually relevant to your job beyond that is often only 5%. 
And so 5% of four years is very short. And so what we're often doing with these shorter programs is sort of cutting back on, on the 90, 95% and focusing in on those work-ready skills. The nature of jobs is changing quickly. People are needing to reskill and uh, find new careers two, three, four times in their lives as is, maybe more in the future. When did this like displacement of individuals and this lack of vehicle to get folks back on track, when did this start becoming your personal mission? Like, What did your path from your first moment of awareness of what's happening out there to where you are today, what'd that look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been passionate about social impact and education uh, pretty much my whole life. My parents are both school teachers, uh, so I was brought up, you know, valuing education or being taught to value education. And certainly my parents uh, always kept saying, like, those to whom much is given, much is required, and that you should always try to give back. And so I guess I've tried to do that, you know, throughout my life. At high school, I, I had a very traditional conception of charity. I thought the way you change the world is you raise money and donate money. Uh, so that's what I did. I, I raised money uh, to rebuild a school in Mozambique and, and to build an orphanage in Thailand following the Boxing Day tsunami. Then uh, at college, at university, I sort of came to what is now the very obvious realization that doing good is as much an intellectual endeavor as it is an emotional endeavor, uh, and that how you approach problems is just as, if not more important than how much money you throw at it. Hmm. Uh, and so then I, I set up a nonprofit called 180 Degrees Consulting uh, to essentially try to help social impact organizations, whether whether nonprofits or social enterprises, uh, to try to become more effective in their approaches and, and to become more financially sustainable and to expand their impact. Uh, so set that up back in 2007, then over the course of the next decade, sort of uh, saw that expand and grow. And, you know, it depends what metrics you pick, but at least by some metrics, it's uh, the world's largest consultancy for nonprofits now and so it's a franchise model we got i would pick those metrics if i was here <laughs> um <laughs> we're, we're a franchise model so we've got about 170 180 franchisees across 40 countries at the moment uh, and i guess through that process i got to work with a lot of education providers around the world and, and i saw firsthand the challenges that they were facing and i think a few things became very very obvious to me one was Often you have great training providers that don't really have a great business model mm. because often they're trying to get individuals to pay, but those individuals don't have that much money. Or they spend 80% of their time applying for grants or doing fundraising. And even if they get some, it's not at scale. And so I was very interested in, can we provide great training providers, whether that's social enterprises or other training providers, uh, a new way to scale up, a new form of growth financing. And that's what Forte is as well. Uh, so that was one challenge on the sort of training provider side. The second challenge was just talking to individuals and challenges when it came to financing high quality education. Uh, and particularly in countries like, you know, uh, many countries in Africa, as well as India, as well as elsewhere, we almost see like a multiple equilibria problem where you have sort of the current state where you, take India, for example, you have tens of millions of girls who are not in school or not receiving high quality education. Right. And you know, often that education is beneficial and will provide benefits if it's provided in 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and so it's how do we get from this current state to that future state? Uh, and how do we sort of move the needle on that? And how do we sort of, in, in some ways, capture those long-term benefits of education and enable some of that to go to an entity that funds that such that there's an incentive to fund that in the first place? And so anyway, through, through 180 Degrees and, and sort of my decade of work there, uh, became really passionate about this and became more and more aware of the problems. Uh, so uh, headed from Australia over to the UK, 
did a couple of grad degrees, one of which was a PhD and focused on that question of how we can better finance human capital investments, particularly how we can finance retraining uh, in the event of mass layoffs. And, and obviously, that research is quite relevant at the moment in light of the pandemic. Let, let's get to the big reveal then. What did you come up with and what, what are you working on? Yeah. And, and so I guess in the PhD, I, I started by looking at all the current ways that we finance education and healthcare, which is you know some of, some of the things that I alluded to earlier. Uh, and I worked out that any way to finance education should have 16 key properties. And when I say key properties, it's things like, you know, in an ideal world, disadvantaged individuals should not have to pay and should not bear the risk. In an ideal world, the government would never be financially worse off. In an ideal world, we would have perfect alignment of social impact and financial return. So worked out 16 key properties that were desirable, that you know the ideal sort of education approach should satisfy, and then proved that no existing approach, whether that's income share agreements or social impact bonds or other ones, satisfy more than eight of those 16 key properties. Uh, and then I proved that the only way that you can achieve those 16 desirable outcomes uh, is with a new approach that no one in the world is doing at the moment. Uh, and I called that approach FORTE. Uh, FORTE is an acronym which stands for Financing of Return to Employment. Uh, now, in terms of how that works, you know, one of the other things that I proved in the PhD, which admittedly is not very insightful, I think it's incredibly intuitive. Uh, it's sort of what we know rather than what we don't know. But uh, often the cost of training individuals is less than the increase in future government income tax revenue ultimately caused by that training. Uh, because if you're more skilled, you're more able to get employed, earn good income, and pay income tax in the future. Just to pause for a second, just to, to kind of play out an example, it costs $15,000 to put me through code school. I'm making somewhere between eighty dollars and $100,000 and then upwards from that annually. So I'm quickly, with my tax revenue, paying off what it costs to put me through code school. Yeah, and it depends what time horizon you're talking about. But often your taxes for about two years more than offset that cost of training. And anything sort of beyond two years is a bonus and, and higher than that. So uh, over the course of 10 years, it's often an order of magnitude greater, that increase, that uplift in tax revenue relative to the cost of training in the first place. Right. Uh, and so the way that Forte works is that, you know, investors via Forte cover the cost of the training for groups of individuals, uh, particularly individuals who would otherwise be paying no or negligible income tax. So these could be, you know, people in long term unemployment or people who have lost their jobs or people in an industry that's being disrupted and unlikely to come back. So uh, investors pay for that training. Uh, and we're focused on training uh, that, again, is in that two month to six month period and very much training people for the jobs of the future. And now that training by its nature increases expected employment, expected incomes and therefore expected government income tax revenue. Uh, and governments, as a part of the contractual arrangement, pass back to investors via Forte uh, a percentage of the tax revenue they receive, a percentage of the increase in tax revenue they receive uh, that's attributable to the training recipients uh, for a set period of time, such as you know 60% for three years or 40% for five years. You can change the percentage and the duration uh, such that it makes sense. Um, so say you have sort of, you know, a thousand people who have lost their jobs due to COVID. Investors could fund that training if it's 10,000 apiece. You know, investors pay that $10 million. Those a thousand people uh, are people who, you know, at the moment or in the absence of training are likely to pay no or negligible income tax. Uh, they get jobs, they start paying income. The government passes a portion of that back. And I do think that model is very mutually beneficial. 
Uh, first of all, from the perspective of the individuals that we're trying to help, what we don't want is a situation where there is any room for them to be exploited. And in this model, individuals don't pay anything at all. They don't pay anything now. They don't pay anything in the future. They don't pay anything. Uh, and so they're not bearing any risk. They're never at a disadvantage. They get free, high-quality training, which if we care about social impact, I think is important. And I think that's the best outcome for those individuals. Uh, from the perspective of the government, you know, this is a way that governments can help groups of disadvantaged individuals uh, without worsening the budget and without bearing risk. Right. The, the value proposition to the government is don't pay for the training up front. In the short term, so say for the first three years, you still get some income tax, not, not the full amount, but that's income tax you otherwise would not have had. And then you get the full benefit of those higher taxes in year four, in year five, in year 10, et cetera. Uh, and so that's pretty significant. And in addition to that, sometimes the government save in terms of expenditure as well. Right. Crime, all the things that go with being disenfranchised in society and jobless. I imagine, yeah, it's not just the lost revenue, but you often have to pay a lot to help those people out or deal with the ramifications of often, especially in the United States, not helping those people out. Yeah, 100%. This, I think, appeals across the political spectrum. Uh, certainly for those more on the on the left end of the spectrum, like this is a way of providing no cost education and healthcare, high quality education and healthcare right. at scale to disadvantaged individuals. But when sort of people on the left tend to propose that, propose the idea of free college, free healthcare, free education, the, the common response is we can't afford it. It costs too much right. from the government standpoint. This doesn't cost the government anything. The government doesn't pay for it. Uh, and so this is a way of having that high quality education and healthcare without sort of that, that pushback on that argument. Right. Even if there's a, if there's a really valid argument for it, there's behavioral economics to consider of folks just being uncomfortable of rewarding or giving to a certain population that they just don't want to. I mean, uh, refugees is a great example in Germany, formerly incarcerated people is a great example in, in the United States. We have tons and tons of formerly incarcerated people being released all the time to little or no resources. But in America, also, we don't offer free education. So a lot of people could be uncomfortable offering a free education or free reskilling to a population that's done harm in some way. Uh, if we're not offering it to the general population, you get around those arguments with the system. Yeah, it's almost as though, you know, to the extent that we, which we care about sort of people uh, looking after themselves. I, I mean, one way of sort of telling this narrative is almost as though individuals are paying for their own education but with their own future tax money right. or their tax revenue. Now, they're not paying extra they're tax. They're financing themselves. They're not paying any extra tax. They're paying the same tax rate as everyone else. Right. Uh, but that higher tax that they pay at that same rate in the future funds their education in the present, but they don't bear the risk. The risk is borne by investors. And what, what I would say about investors is, you know, this, I think, has perfect alignment of social impact and financial returns. Like the mm. way investors make the most money is if the training is really high quality, if those individuals right. are actually helped, if they're actually getting jobs, if they're actually able to support their families, if they're actually staying in those great jobs uh, for a couple of years. It's a type of capitalism, like reformation, that I hadn't heard of before this, that's really brilliant in terms of like ideologically, someone could be agnostic about the impact and still move a lot of resources towards solutions like this. Yeah, 100%. I mean, what, what's nice about this is even morally agnostic profit seekers uh, are still incentivized to do what is in the best interest of humanity. They're still incentivized to help, right. you know, the poorest of the poor, the lowest income earners to have new opportunities and to achieve their full potential. And while I would love to just rely on philanthropy and goodwill, the reality is like 
the size of you know the, the philanthropic capital relative to profit-seeking capital is, is super minimal. And so the way that we solve the scale of the problems facing our world is to tap into larger pools of capital. No, those larger pools of capital are profit-seeking capital. And so the question then is, you need to align social impact and financial returns. And what I love about this model is it's one, individuals aren't paying anything. So social impact is maximized. Right. But two, investor returns are not you know, as limited because there's no cap. We're, we're growing the pie uh, and then splitting the surplus. Uh, and so because of that, we can actually provide sort of good returns to investors, but in a way that doesn't cost individuals anything and where the government just passes on a portion of what they otherwise would not have had and so the government doesn't lose out in this process either. It feels like you and Forte are really built to meet this moment. I saw the other day that the top, I don't know, 500 wealthiest people increased their wealth by like th- over $3 trillion since the pandemic started. Uh, so we have this funneling of wealth towards you know the wealthy. We, the wealthy are compounding their wealth and, and doing better and better. And in the meantime, as you pointed out during the pandemic, lots and lots of individuals are being displaced. And a lot of that displacement is here to stay. A lot of these like retail stores that had to start relying more on automation have had enough time to get those systems working. A lot of those jobs aren't coming back. So, so there's these two trends, right? There's, there's automation acceleration and the wealth gap that just keeps compounding in favor of the wealthy. So I'd love to know, you know, as this moment's going on and you're talking to governments, you're talking to folks, how's it going with Forte? What are you up to right now? Where are you seeing traction? Yeah, no, no, as you say, it's, um, you know, obviously I'm, I'm biased, but I, I do think Forte is the best way of providing education and healthcare to disadvantaged individuals around the world. Uh, I do think it's the best way to align social impact and financial returns. I, I do think it's the future of impact investing, ESG investing, et cetera. I, I do think so many individuals are in need at the moment, and hopefully we can be a you know part of that solution. Certainly, last week, um, as part of the Davos agenda, we were endorsed by the World Economic Forum, uh, who recommended this as one of the financing solutions that companies, uh, countries around the world, should employ uh, as part of the COVID recovery. Wow. We also had the Prime Minister of Saint Lucia write an article for the World Economic Forum, uh, also endorsing the four-day model and confirming that. Uh, we'll be rolling out the Forte model in St. Lucia. Uh, obviously, St. Lucia is not the biggest country, but we'll be retraining uh, about 500 people there, both to diversify the economy, but also obviously they've been very hard hit by tourism as well. So very much sort of trying to increase the resilience of the country, diversify it. Uh, and we also have a big uh, gender focus there. So we'll be focusing on women who have been disproportionately affected by COVID and, and training them for sort of the skill, the jobs of the future. You know, this can be applied to help many, many different disadvantaged groups. This can be a, used to address, you know, racial inequality. It can be used to help refugees, help uh, individuals who have been incarcerated and, and help them sort of get back on their feet. It can be used to help indigenous communities around the world. Right. Even when it comes to the environment, it's like, how do we train people for the green jobs of the future? This is a way to do that. How do we reskill oil and gas workers and people in unsustainable industries so that we can prove that you can have a sustainable transition without job losses. This is a way to do that. That's beautiful. What are your aspirations in the near term? What do you, what do you hope happens in the, in the next couple years as governments start trying to recover from what's all happened? Uh, what do you think is possible? What are you looking forward to saying is true in a couple years? I, I'm very big on impact investing and social entrepreneurship and, and how we make a difference at scale. And what we're trying to do with Forte is to in some ways provide a roadmap for what capitalism could be. 
rather than sort of, you know, the profit motivation being a bad word and a bad thing, how can we actually use that as a tool to help the most disadvantaged in a way that they are protected, in a way that they're not exploited, but we can still use that innovation and that, you know, motivation uh, of the private sector. And so I view this as what capitalism should be. You know, we often talk about, you know, aligning social impact and financial returns at an organization level. And, you know, we, we throw out examples of that, whether it's Tom's Shoes or Tesla or et cetera, et cetera. But this is how we can align social impact and financial returns at a systems level. Right, right. I, I've been lucky and many people have been lucky in life, but there are many people who are unlucky as well. And the thing is, opportunity is not evenly distributed. Ability is evenly distributed, but opportunity isn't. And I guess my underlying philosophy is, how do we provide everyone with the opportunity to achieve their full potential? And how do we do that at scale? And I'm at least convinced that this is a very scalable way to do that. And so ultimately what I want to see is this being one of the, if not the main ways that we finance education and healthcare to lots of different groups who need it uh, in the next decade. Uh, and the journey that we're going through is very much in the short term, be a part of the pandemic response uh, in the US, in Canada, in Australia, in the UK, in St. Lucia. Uh, we're also working with um, you know, the Rwandan government and Colombian government on, on rolling this out potentially in those places as well. So very much be a part of that pandemic response. But I think this model can go beyond that and, and can be a way that we finance education and healthcare and other human capital investments uh, in the long term. Awesome, man. All right. Well, I got a couple quick hitters for you, and then I'm going to give you the floor. So these questions, just a sentence or two. Who's a change maker you've been inspired by recently? I mean, I might, I might answer that in a slightly unusual way and in a different way that, you know, when I think of change makers, I think uh, you almost want to be as innovative as Elon Musk. And when it comes to social impact, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for Muhammad Yunus. And I think from a social impact standpoint, you want to be like him. And then from a, you know, being personable and enjoying life, which which I think it's important for entrepreneurs to occasionally, you know, take time out um, and sort of not get too burnt out. Uh, I think Richard Branson comes to mind. So I think anyone right. who can try to operate in that triangle of Elon Musk, Muhammad Yunus, and Richard Branson, <laughs> uh, they'll probably get to the end of their life and not have too many regrets. So, so you know, somewhere in that triangle, I, I think, is the goal. That's beautiful. Last one. What habit most helps you do what you do? Uh, it's not so much a, I guess, one mindset I have that, you know, when it comes to entrepreneurship, often people place a lot of weight on financial risk. And when you think of risk, people's mind go to the financials. Uh, but I think you know, the risk of regret is an equally valid risk and you don't want to get to the mm. end of your life and have regrets. And so often when, when people are sort of encountering financial risk in a decision, I, I kind of say, well, consider all the risks involved that if you don't do something, if you don't take that leap, you may well get to, you know, five or 10 or 20 years down the road and regret it. And, and that should in some ways maybe offset the financial risk. So, well, I really appreciate you coming on, you spending your time here. I want to give you the floor before we close it out. Whatever you have to share, please share it. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no worries. Well, thank, thank you for having me on. And I, I mean, I guess th there are obviously a lot of different ways of achieving social impact and development outcomes. And, and I think that, you know, we can argue over which approach is better or whatnot. But uh, I think we should sort of have an open mind and and sort of use all the tools at our disposal. And I think that what I like about Forte is it does seem to appeal across the spectrum. For those who are, 
you know, more right wing. Uh, they view this as like fiscally responsible and tapping into private sector innovation and investment. And, you know, on the left, if you do care about high quality education and healthcare at no cost to the individuals who need it in a way that there is no chance of them being exploited and they're not left with any debt, you know, and we want to do that at scale, I think this is a good approach. Capitalism is a human invention. The economic system was a human invention. And just the same as we can change everything else, so too can we redesign that system to make it work. And I think too many people view capitalism as something that is like set in stone, that is solid, that is good or bad, that can't be changed, and it just is what it is. And that's not true. Uh, it's a system, that system can be changed and improved and designed, and it can be changed in a way uh, that is beneficial for those who most need it. And so I'd say, look, let's you know use that system to our advantage. Let's use that to help those who need it. Let's use it to help refugees. Let's use it to help veterans. Let's use it to get more, more women into STEM. Let's use it to address racial inequality uh, because it can be done. Uh, the scale of the problems facing our world are pretty great. We need scalable solutions. We need to tap into large pools of capital to get there. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much for spending your time here. No, thank you. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for listening to What We Don't Know. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. You can also follow us on social. We're WWDKpod on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. All right, take care.